Open up with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Praise the Lord. I'm going to give you a quick lesson on the book of Hebrews. That doesn't mean it's going to be a short sermon. I'm just saying I'm going to summarize the whole book for you today. So you're not going to hear the entire book itself. I'm going to summarize it. And I want to start off today with describing a little bit about the book of Hebrews if you don't know much about it. It's the only book in the New Testament where we're not 100% sure who is the author. And you might say to yourself, well, is that a bad thing? I mean, you know, if we don't know who wrote it, how do we know it's good? And in actuality, it's not a bad thing. The reason is, is because when you're talking about what is Scripture and what is not, it doesn't matter if it has somebody's name next to it. As a matter of fact, as time went on in church history, around 100 years after Jesus and the apostles, everybody wrote books and put their names on the title. So you would find books by Peter and the Apocalypse of Peter. You would find books claimed to be written by Barnabas. And they were not really written by these people. And so actually the fact that Hebrews doesn't mention its author is actually a good thing because it shows that the author wasn't about themselves. What they were about was the teachings of the church. Now there's been some great ideas, and over the last 2,000 years there's been books and and many scholars who have worked on who they think is the, the author. Church history supports the author of Paul, uh, being the author Paul, and I still do, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But as we've gotten a little bit more sophisticated and been able to read Greek and understand different types of writing in Greek, people have realized that the way the Greek is written in Hebrews is much different than all the other writings of Paul. Also, Paul would always have standardized greetings. If you read every one of his letters, like uh, Philemon, which is the book right before it, chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He always started his letters with that, and he always ended with salutations, like in verse 23 of Philemon. It says, Greet my fellow prisoner in Christ, also does Mark, etc. Verse 25, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So people began to look at the difference in grammar of the Greek and didn't have an author, and so they doubted that it was from Paul. And so the different people that have been suggested, though there's no evidence because we really don't have much to go on, it's kind of silent on the subject, is the next one in line would be Apollos. And you hear about Apollos in the Bible. He's a really radical Jewish teacher, and then he gets uh, holy ghosted and filled by Priscilla and Aquila. And so people have kind of looked at his personality just in the Bible, and scholars have said maybe he was the one that would have wrote this because he was very much into the Jewish faith but also on fire. Uh, other than Apollos, the list kind of gets a little dismal from there, people taking their best guess. But I'll tell you why I think it's Paul, and here's just my, my guess and my best idea. There's nothing proven by this. But if you know history, the apostles always wrote with scribes. So even when Paul writes his other letters, he says, I wrote this with my own hand, or he says somebody else <clears throat> excuse me, wrote this for me. And so what that would give you is differences in a Greek format. And so I would say that Paul probably had somebody write this for him. And then my guess goes a little bit deeper. I believe that somebody probably who was working with Paul took all of his main teachings on uh, Jewish faith and transferring over to the Christian faith and kind of brought it together. And I really came up with this on the plane right over here because the president of the School of Urban Missions wants me to do that with his book on Points of Light, which is an urban outreach program. And he said, look, I got all of these notes, I got all of these uh, teachings, but I haven't put them together, and there's a lot of uh, things missing. Sometimes they call this a ghostwriter. And so he's asking me to put it together for him. You know, where it goes point A, point B, he wants me to make those two points a sentence. Do, Do you understand? And so I kind of just happen to believe that that's what this is and the reason why his name wouldn't be on it is because Paul himself was arrested in Jerusalem hated among the Jews and so my best guess is that he said look don't put my name on this because nobody who's Jewish will read it then they won't want to listen to it and so take my best teachings uh, scribe put them together and send them out to the Jewish believing people that they may be able to understand the truth of God how many just learned something right there Amen. If you say, I don't like those types of teachings, I'm sorry. I can't do anything about it. The Bible doesn't tell us who wrote it. Sometimes we as Christians, we get scared. We're like, well, I don't know what to do, Pastor. Who wrote it then? Tell me. And it's okay. It's okay, guys. Everybody go, it's okay. 
That's my best guess so you learned something about the book of Hebrews. That's a little of my seminary coming out. Okay, now, the book of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. And so its purpose is to take you through a journey, <clears throat> excuse me, of the Jewish faith and why it points to Jesus. And so just as if I said to you, would you rather have the shadow of a million dollars or a million dollars? What would you rather have? The million dollars. If I said to my wife, what would you rather have, my shadow or me? She would say, depends what day it is. No, I'm kidding. She would say, you. We, I want you. That's what she would say. I, I know that's what she would say, really. She would never say anything other than that. But anyways, so in the Jewish faith, everything is a shadow. What do you want, animal sacrifice or Jesus? That's the point. What do you want, a temple or do you want your body to be the temple? What do you want? priests that can only go and talk to God every now and then, or somebody like yourself where the priesthood of the believer is for everybody. That's the point of Hebrews. And intertwined in this message is what you will now see. My message title is the five warnings of Hebrews. You see the strongest warnings that are found in the entire New Testament. You might say, well, Revelation's got the fire and the dragon and all that. No, listen to me. What I'm about ready to read to you today is more descriptive, more detailed than even Revelation in the great white throne of judgment. You are about ready to hear the most serious warnings, and it's intertwined with these great lessons. So I want to encourage you to go back this week and just read the book of Hebrews. Now, some of our, our Bible class are already learning that if you get cool and get an audio Bible, you can sit down in your car and listen to a book like Hebrews like in a half hour. But if you love to read, you could probably read it in an hour tops. So just think of like half of your favorite movie. Come on, somebody. Oh, it's tight, but it's right. Amen. Or just half of a football game, maybe. Amen. So no excuses, right? So this week, try to read your book of Hebrews and then see what I taught you about the warnings and then take the lessons and it will encourage you. Amen. Today will encourage you, but it's going to be a little rough. Okay. Hebrews chapter two, verse one. If you're there, say I'm there. Five warnings in the book of Hebrews is a lesson. Warning number one is pay attention. Pay attention. Warning number one is pay attention. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed by us, by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Somebody say, pay attention. Come on, look at your neighbor, shake him a little bit, and say, pay attention. Come on, I want people paying attention this morning. So the first thing you need to pay attention to is that you don't drift away from God. Now, hold on. Is he talking to people that are lost? No, because you're already lost. How can you drift away more if you're already lost? Are you listening? No, he's talking to Christians. And the illustration that it's giving is a ship on the sea. And the idea is right here, when you pay attention to God's word, you're anchored. You have a foundation. You have something that stops you from going all over the place. And these are good in the ocean, okay? These are things you want, like a buoy or something. When ships can latch on to an oil rig, it keeps them from getting thrown everywhere. When Hurricane Katrina came in the waters there, they buckled down to the piers. Are you all with me? And the Bible is saying, pay attention lest you forget this message and drift away. Now, does it say you get thrown like a hurricane wind 500 miles away? No, 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 no. You just drift away. So there's a time when you just say, well, I'm still kind of close. Yeah, I'm watching movies that are wrong, but they're not that bad. So God's still here. And I still come on Sundays. You know, I have friends that aren't really living for God, but that's okay because I still have Christian friends. And then you drift a little bit more, a little bit more. And if you're not careful, yeah, I'll go back to church next week. You know, you've missed a Sunday now, and you're just reaching out. Yeah, I'll go because you're so close. And then you think to yourself, man, all i got to do is just, just kind of get a little bit, a couple breaths, you know, just a little bit of a wave, and I'm right back. It's okay. And all of a sudden, a month goes by, haven't read your word, haven't prayed. Now it's like, 
man, God, where are you? And then you get out here in life, and bad things start to happen to you. And you have no anchor. And then the devil, he lies to you. He starts to tell you now, God is nowhere around you. God doesn't care about you. Oh, yeah, God doesn't care. Because I don't see. But he doesn't tell you. It's because of your sin you've drifted away, and God is waiting for you. Like the prodigal son, the father was waiting at the door. You see, the Bible is teaching us, pay attention. Pay attention to the things you have heard so you do not drift away. What are the things you've heard? John 3.16, write them down, come on. That God loves the world. Never forget that. Hold on to the anchor of God's love every day in your life. Hold on to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. I write this to you that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have the righteous advocate who is not only the propitiation for our sins, but for the sins of the world. So number one, remember what you heard. God loves you so you don't drift away. So you don't let trials convince you that God's not around. And then if you do sin, because you know everybody tells you you're not perfect, right? Because that's the, the model of today. Nobody's perfect. Okay, because since we all say it, well, here's the point. Here's the solution. Forgiveness. Sanctification. Remember those things. Remember that God said to you, this is what's right. This is what's wrong. John chapter 14, I believe, verse 15. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my command. Somebody say, pay attention. So that you do not drift away. So what do we call people who drift away? Backsliders. And why do we say they're sliding back? Because this is forward and now they're going back. And so what do we say to the backslider? Slide on back. (laughs) You slid this way. Now slide back this way. Come right back to God. Revelations chapter 3, go there with me, verse 16, gives the answer to anybody here that's drifted away. Revelations chapter 3, verse 16 says, If you don't live right, God will spew you out of His mouth. Look at Revelation 3.16. If you're there, say, I'm there. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Doesn't that kind of sound like somebody who's drifted away? Doesn't that sound like somebody? I mean, they're still close enough to God where they understand Christmas is about Jesus. It's not about Santa. They're close enough to God to know they shouldn't steal. They're close enough to God that, to know that they're not supposed to have sex, you know, just every now and then they're struggling. But come on, they, you know, without being married. You know, they're close enough to God to know that, right? But, but what's also going on? They're also close enough to the world to laugh at dirty jokes. They're also close enough in the world to hook up with people who aren't safe. They're also close enough in the world to lie on taxes to get more money back. They're also close enough in the world to put football and all that before God. So the Bible calls it in Revelation a lukewarm person. Somebody say, God says, you make me puke. That's what he says to the lukewarm person. Our God of love and kindness says to the lukewarm person, you make me puke. He says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, before you just give up and say, oh, man, I'm just nasty to God, he gives you hope. He doesn't love what you do. As a matter of fact, he hates what you do. He hates it when we do that. He calls it adultery. Think of that, my friends. How many girlfriends do you think my wife would let me have? How many? How, and if I had one, how long do you think she would let me keep it? Keep her. Why is it we want to cheat on God all the time and say, God, I'm just keeping this one sin around, this one thing that you know, I know it's wrong, but I'm just going to keep it around a little bit. No, we're lying to ourselves. And God says, no, you make me puke when you do that. When you live that way, I want to spit you right out of my mouth. And I know some of you have done it, and there's certain drinks that this illustration fits perfectly, like coffee. It's good hot or it's good cold. Lukewarm, laying out all day, nasty. Milk, the same way. It's good hot. It's good cold. Laying out all day, it's nasty. Pop, same way. It's a lot of different things. Maybe not so much pop being hot. I meant tea. Sorry. Tea. Never had any hot pop. If you have, talk to us later about your recipe. Tea. But Jesus said that's what it's like. Because what's the reaction? You're not like looking at milk going, you're going to make me puke. No, you're not paying attention. It's the cup next to the other cup. Something happens, you know, boom, you take it. Listen, man, I was at a party one time. This is why people never drink, because it makes a fool out of you. There was a beer here and another can here that a guy was dipping in and putting his ashes in. I drank that thing. I puked so 
hard. I'm talking I puked my brains out. You know, you listen, it was like God saying, hey, I told you. You make me puke when you live like that. It was like an illustration. My friends, that's what it's like. God is taking your life and he's going to taste you. Because he's not saying here, I wish you lived for the devil or you lived for me. Because sometimes people take the hot and cold being that way. Well, God wishes you would either just be radical for the devil, worshiping Satan, sacrificing children and drinking blood, or praising God at church. No, that's not what he's saying when he says, I wish you were hot or cold. No, what he's saying is, I wish you were positive in both of these ways. One way is positive cold. One way is positive hot. You all understand that, okay? So Jesus comes and he takes a sip of your life and he says, you make me puke. That is so nasty. Why? Because he's so holy. Just as your physical body would react to those types of things we mentioned, those lukewarm drinks, he reacts to us the same way. But keep going. He says, you say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, blind, poor, and naked. That is hard, but it is true. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. So he's saying, you're really naked, miserable, blind, and poor, and all of that, but I'm going to heal you, I'm going to restore you, and I'm going to give you gold. How do we do that? Verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. So going back to Hebrews, what is the solution to the one who drifts away? Come on, amen. Repent and come back. Do you hear God knocking at your heart? Do you hear him saying, do you remember the things I used to told you? The things you used to know were true. Go back to those things. Don't let things drift away. Now, for those of us who are here and you say, Pastor, whoa, hey, I ain't driven away, man. I am staying right here. Okay? For those of us who are like radical, how many radical Christians do we have with God right now? And you are right here. You're not going anywhere, right? Like holding on. How many holding on? Come on. Never let go. Never. Never think you stand lest you fall. Never say to yourself, man, I got this. I don't got to pray today. Come on, man. All of a sudden, it's just that drift will start to come. Man, I've got to read my Bible anymore. I've read that thing so many times. See, it's the ones who've been around for so long to get that temptation. You're so spiritual. Spiritual. That's how the devil talks. You're spiritual. You don't have to pray. You have to read your Bible. You know more than the pastor. Come on. You know you've heard those thoughts before. Don't pretend like you haven't now. I know some of you have. And then all of a sudden, what you thought was, you would never, I'll never let go. I'll never, never, never let go. All of a sudden, just a little bit, just a, I just don't need to read my Bible. I just, and I don't need to pray. Why do I need to say no to that temptation? Why do I need to watch my words when I'm with my wife? Why, why do I need to ask people to forgive me when I sin? Now, why do I need to humble myself and submit to a pastor? Why do I need to be discipled? Why do I need to come to church twice a week to the small group? Man, why do I need to be a part of the youth outreach? Why do I need to... And all of a sudden, here you are, out lost. Hold on. Everybody say, pay attention. Amen. Go to Hebrews chapter 3 now. Second warning. The second warning is the warning against unbelief. Everybody say, unbelief. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 12. If you're there, say, I'm there. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none, no one, may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. As he as has just been said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the time of rebellion. Somebody say, believe. Do you know that everything you do in Christianity is based upon you believing? Doesn't that kind of make sense? Because if you don't believe, you're not going to raise your hands. You're not going to pray. You're not going to read your Bible because it's like, you know, fairy tales, right? So what does the Bible warn against? Unbelief. Now, how does unbelief come, my friends? And listen to me. I've heard so many arguments of unbelief. I've debated the best of the atheists. I'm telling you, man, I've heard them all. But I want to tell you where it comes from. It doesn't come from some slick-sounding hypotheses, worked-out technical argument. You know where unbelief comes from? 
the deceitfulness of sin. Oh, yes, look back on your lives, those of you who have backslided. I've backslid before. You know what it was? It wasn't like I sat down one day, Mom, and I researched Christianity and said, Oh, yes, oh, that's what it said. Oh, I know now. Oh, this is contradicting itself. You know what it was? I love sin. And as I began to say, I love sin, it deceived me. You see, sin will come to you all pretty wrapped up in a package. And the devil will say, look how nice sin is. Look how good adultery looks. Look how good pornography is. Look how good laziness is and self-satisfaction and selfish ambition. Look how good gossip looks. And you'll look at that package and you'll start to believe it if you're not careful. And then he'll pull out that beautiful cake of sin and he'll just say, take a little taste. Come on. Just look at it a little bit. Just do that one download. Just do that. Come on, just just say those one words in that argument. Come on, gossip. Just taste. And then when you taste it, those of you who have tasted sin, we all have. Sin will be so pleasurable. You'll say to yourself, oh man, what was... I thought this was going to be bad. I always tell young people, sex doesn't hurt. Sex is not a bad thing. Doing drugs and alcohol doesn't always end up with a guy puking on the floor. Sometimes it's just, you know, you just have so much fun. That's how it is sometimes, my friend. If, if sin wasn't fun, it wouldn't be tempting. The devil doesn't come and say, hey, psst, do your homework. <laughs> young people, look at the pencil on the desk. Oh, I know you want it. Look at the textbook. Geology, come on. Take a peek. Come on, you know the devil doesn't tempt us with things that aren't tempting. Oh, he loves to take the things that this they taste so good. Oh, when you tell that person off, oh, it, oh, it feels good for a moment. I feel so much better. I don't know about them, but I feel better. Come on. Oh, you know that, that, that perversion when we were in the world. Oh, it felt good. Oh, yeah. You get some last night. Yeah, I got some. It felt good. But what happens? The heart begins to get hard. Look at it again. See to you that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. And it goes on to verse 13. And then gets hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You know how the heart attacks happen in people's lives? As they keep eating a little cholesterol. Oh, that host con con fried up, man. Ooh, muy bueno. Little cholesterol. Oh, I like that pizza, Giordano's pizza, man. The big one with everything up. A little more cholesterol. Come on. And then what it does is it builds up. And it builds up. And the same word for harden here is the same word that the doctors use. For the hardness of your arteries. And that heart is just pumping. But it can't get the blood through anymore. Because that cholesterol has blocked your arteries. And then one day that heart just gives out. Can't do it anymore. It was trying to pump blood through a hard artery. And what God is saying is that same exact thing. If you're not careful, the streams of God's living water in your life will start to get so polluted with sin that the love you once had for God won't go anymore to the parts of your life it used to. Your marriage will become hard. Your relationship with your parents becomes hard. And now what happens when you got a hard heart? Unbelief. And it never worked anyway. God never really set me free. I just, I just thought I was free for a couple months. I wasn't really changed. That didn't really work. I didn't really feel God. Man, there's not a God that loves me. How could all this stuff happen in my life? How could all this evil be here? My heart doesn't feel it anymore. Why? Because sin came in and hardened you to a rock. And you're numb. And that's when you meet people on the street or family members. Oh, I don't want that, God. I don't want that. Just, you know what? You're talking to somebody with a hard heart. And it's just like touching this right here. They can't feel it. The only way to get your heart soft again is to go to Ezekiel chapter 37. Somebody say, help us, Lord. Go to Ezekiel chapter 37. I don't have time to go to 37. Start with 36. 
37 is the dry bones. Read that whole illustration if you have time. I've got to summarize it, though. Lord, help me. But read the illustration of dry bones, how God will take what is hard, what cannot have any life in it, and he'll do it by his Spirit. Go with me to 37, uh, 36. Look at chapter 36 and start, let's say go to around verse 13. 36 and 37 is a passage of restoration. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because people say to you, you devour men and deprive your nation of its children. Therefore, you will no longer devour men or make your, your nation childless, declares the Sovereign Lord. Listen to verse 15. No longer will I make you hear the taunts of the nations, and no longer will you suffer the scorn of the people or cause the nation to fall, declares the Lord. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and actions. So how did they defile it? By conducts and actions. He says their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. Come on, somebody. God says that our sin becomes like a menstrual cycle to a woman. God have mercy. Somebody say, Mercy, Lord. Keep going, verse 24. I wish I had time to read these passages. Verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into my land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will remove, hello somebody, or I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Look at verse 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of what? Your heart of what? Your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you in my decrees. Move you to follow my decrees and be careful to follow my laws. But pastor, sin is so hard. Temptation is so tempting. What do I do? You let God change your heart. If you're in that place today, you let God change your heart. If you had enough common sense to come to this church today, have enough common sense by the end of this message to say, Lord, I don't know how. I know I don't deserve it. But change me, oh God. And when you say, change me, God's Spirit will come inside of you. Take out the heart of stone. Give you a heart of flesh. And literally move you. Move you to follow God's laws. When you think about compromising and sinning, He will motivate you, energize you, give you dunamis, shika, boomba, dynamite, power to say no to the devil. Because God called you to be a conqueror. Like the nation of Israel was sinning in Ezekiel's example, God said, I'm going to take you out. I'm going to do heart surgery. I'm going to transplant a new heart. I'm going to give you a new artery, new veins, and then I'm going to teach you how to live for me. Do not be deceived, my friends. Unbelief is because of sin. And that is for every religion. Some people say, well, what about other religions? You know what other religions are? It's man's way to God. Christianity is God coming to man. There's no other way. You can sum them all up like that. Well, if I pray five times a day, I can get this. Well, if I you know, believe in this, I can get that. No, listen to me. That's all from the heart of unbelief. Because you know what Christianity says? You can't do anything to earn it. You can't pray your way to heaven. You can't witness your way there. You can't vegetarianize yourself there like Hindus. You can't do any of that. You see? You're a pit of destruction. And you just lean back and say, I throw my hands in the arms of God. And the cross bridges you from where you are to where he is. If you've ever seen that illustration by Billy Graham, here you are in sin. Here is pit, hell, and destruction. Here is the glory of God. The cross bridges the way over. You just fall on it with everything you have. That takes faith. And that is the ultimate faith of all mankind. It's not faith to land on the moon. It's not faith to believe that Moses split the Red Sea with God's power. It's faith believing that when I confess my sins to a holy God, He forgives me and I'm not under guilt or condemnation and I am saved. And you know that you're saved. Amen? Amen. Turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. A warning against falling away. We've talked about paying attention. We've talked about unbelief. Now we're going to talk about falling away. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. If you're there, say, I'm there. 
This is going to be the second strongest warning you'll ever hear in the Bible. But it comes in a way that I believe is the hardest. The, sec- the next one, which is technically number four, has more adjectives that will terrify you more than any other scripture. But this one doesn't have those adjectives like what's going to happen to you. It just says it so plainly to me. It's, it's harsher. I want you to listen. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. How many just got a little terrified reading that? Some of you are already thinking theologically through this. Well, Pastor, what do we do with the backslider then? This says that if you know the Lord, you can't come back. And so there's different versions and takes on this very strong Scripture. And I'll give you the different ones and I'll tell you what I believe exactly what it's saying. The first one, which I believe is totally not what it's saying, but people teach it, is that the people that are being described here never really were saved. And it's simply just saying, if you hear the message, if you taste God in His presence, if you do all of that, but you turn away, you can't be saved. And so that to me is kind of a ridiculous thing because they weren't saved to begin with. So what's the point of telling them that you can't be saved? Why would God take somebody not saved and then say you can't be saved? See, that's where Calvinism comes in in a whole other discussion, but it's absolutely ridiculous. It makes no sense because everything described here means you're saved. I don't think of another way you could say I'm saved unless it says I'm saved. I mean, look at how it describes this person. They've been enlightened. Wouldn't you consider that salvation? They've tasted the heavenly gift. How many have Sean died a little bit, tasted the heavenly gift? Come on. Praise the Lord. That's not my tongue, by the way, in case you were wondering. Sounds a little different. Okay, enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift. How about shared in the Holy Ghost? Do sinners get to share in the Holy Ghost? So how is this? Somebody that wasn't really saved and now they walked away and they really just can't be saved. That makes no sense. How about this? tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Who does that except believers? How about this? Powers of the coming age. How many have prophesied or been in a dream or a vision seen the powers of the coming age? You see, the people that were just described there, they are Christians. So number one option, they were not really Christians, thus they can't be Christians, is not an option. So what's the other one? Option number two is that this applies to every backslider. This was actually the early church definition of this. So if you were a part of the early church and you committed a mortal sin, and this is where Catholics get it from. Don't re- always remember church history is not Catholicism. Catholicism developed around five to 600 years after Jesus. Okay, So it's kind of like a collaboration of all the history. And they became you know, way out there. But for many years, there was never a pope, you know, and all this stuff is going on. So this is kind of what, what the root of what you see now in Catholicism. And here was the point. If you were baptized, and you said, I accept Christ, and I, you were baptized, and you committed like a deed of the flesh, like you had adultery, you committed homosexuality, and they had like these lists of like really bad sins, you cannot be saved anymore. You are excommunicated, forever anathemized. And they literally had church like that. They had church that if they found out you knew the Lord and did some of the stuff people in here have done, you are done. Like, you, you just fall into that category. And I'll tell you something. It's a lot closer to the right interpretation than the one I just said to you. That's why it used to be a fear of God. Ananias and Sapphira died in the house of God. That's how serious they took the Bible. They said, look, you know this? You were speaking in tongues? You were reading your Bible? And then you flat out lie? You're done. You commit adultery in the Old Testament, you were stoned. In the New Testament, we excommunicate you. You can't go to heaven. So it's harsh, but it's closer. Here's what I believe it is. I believe, lastly, that this is speaking to a person who's gotten to a place where this is who they are, and they walk away, and God says, I'm done with you. I don't believe that it's every person. I just personally don't believe that it's every backslider. And the reason why I don't is because I don't see this played out all throughout Scripture. 
Hence, what we just had in Ezekiel and Israel. They're backslidden as all backslidden can be, and yet God can bring them out. You know, you see the prodigal son. He comes back. First Corinthians chapter 5, the man having sex with his mother-in-law. He gets excommunicated, but he can be brought back. Do you understand? So I don't believe this applies to every backslider, but I certainly believe it means what it says, and there is no if, ands, or buts about it. And I happen to believe that I'm personally one of these people. Happen to be. One of those people that I fit this category. I've tasted God. I've seen his glory. I've seen dreams and visions. I believe if I walked away, it's over. I really, I have a fear of God in my heart, which is a healthy fear of God. If I denied him this time, it's done. I'm telling you. And I've heard stories in church history where people have seen men of God like myself fall, and they go down, and they never come back. And at the end of their life, they hate God. See, my friends, conviction is actually a gift from God. It's actually a gift to know you're wrong and to feel bad about it. That's why when you know that you're wrong and you feel bad about it, you better come back to the Lord. And so somebody might say to me, well, Pastor, how do I know I'm not this backslider right now? Well, the way I would determine it is if you desire repentance, then God has given you repentance. But the person that's here doesn't desire repentance anymore, thus they don't get it anymore, and they are as lost as lost can be. And God says, just like he did with uh, Pharaoh, I've given them a hard heart. I've given spirits to lie to him. They are now deceived. And he also says this in the end times. He said, they didn't receive my son. Now they're going to receive the mark of the beast, and I will send lying spirits to them to actually deceive them even more. Can you believe that? God will actually say, I'm not only wanting you to do this, I want you to show us how bad you can be when you do it. That's when he just says, I'm handing you over to everything you've ever wanted, and I'll give you spirits to help you do it. See, God is not to be played with, my friends. You see, if you're sitting in this place today, take it as a warning that if you're living in sin, And you're thinking, well, I'm just going to kind of drift away, come back, drift away and come back. You may shake yourself like Samson one time after your hair is cut and find out you're not coming back. He got his eyes poked out and put in to uh, captivity. But somewhere at that point, God had mercy on him again and let him come back. But Saul, we don't think was so fortunate. Solomon, we don't think was so fortunate. What is the difference between Judas and Peter? Both of them denied him. But why did God say to, to, to Judas, I've handed you over to Satan. Go do what you want and let the man commit suicide. That'll put the fear of God in you right now, my friends. How can Jesus look at a Judas, knowing what he's going to do, and say, do it? That's what he said at the Last Supper. He said, do what you came to do. He knew the whole story. He just said, go and do it. He's done. He said, you've been with me for three years. You've tasted. You've seen. You've done miracles. Judas was there when miracles were done. Judas was there when Peter walked on water. Judas saw it all. And Jesus says, you saw that and you still want to betray me? You're done. My friends, don't play with the holy God. And if you think it means the other thing, I challenge you, because I went to all three of my commentators, and they dropped the ball so hard here because they can't deal with the weight of this Scripture. My friends, I'm not going to be dishonest to make you feel better. That is what it says. It happened in the time of Israel, the sin of Achan. He was stoned with his family. You're done. It happened with Ananias and Sapphira. You're done. Our God is not to be played with. Holiness is not the the cherry on top of your yuppie life. Holiness or hell, my friends, for without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You're dealing with the holy God. Amen? Praise God. Help us, Lord. Don't fall away. You're warned now. Amen? Hebrews chapter 10, two more to go and about another hour and a half left. Let's do it. Praise the Lord. I'm so glad for a church that gets excited when I say that. Hebrews 10, 26. A little light momentary smile as we get back into the most terrifying verse to me in the Bible. It is beyond any shadow of a doubt the most terrifying thing you could ever hear. Chapter 10, verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning, After we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Now listen to how he describes what you do have coming your way. But only a fearful expectation of judgment, of raging fire, that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished 
who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And here it is, verse 31. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I don't know how that makes you feel, but this, this gives me a whole other respect for my God. I know my daddy loves me, but I also know my daddy's strong. I don't want to pick a fight with him. It's the same thing with God. I know God loves me, but I do not want to do what he just warned me not to do. You do not want to do this, my friends. That is why when we teach you in this church, well, pastor, how much sin can I get away with and still get to heaven? That's really what you're asking some of you. I'm not saying like, you know, genuinely people have questions. Well, you know, is this bad? Is this? No, some people come to this church and they genuinely want to know, where's the line, pastor? What can I do and get away with? You know what I'm saying? I mean, can I drink three beers, two beers? How many beers can I drink? How many, you know, how many clubs can I go to? Pastor, you know, how often can I skip church and still be a part of the chosen few? I mean, come on, the line is just right here. Just come on, Pastor, tell me the line. Listen to me. If you understood this scripture, you would take this line, put a jetpack on your little rear end, and shoot yourself off to space and say, I don't want to be anywhere next to that line. You would do you would crawl on your hands and knees with broken glass, say, Dear God, I don't want to be close to that line. Spare me, Jesus, from myself so I don't get close to that line. After reading a scripture like this, your God is saying to you, I will terrify you on the day of judgment. We live in a culture where we swat flies like it's nothing, like a little, you know, a little fly, a little spider. God will swat you to judgment like it's nothing. And you think he'll mourn over you. You think he'll cry and say, we could have been friends. He will laugh at your destruction, the Bible says. As your calamity comes, he will laugh at you. When he comes on judgment day, he tears apart the nation with his sword, brings the blood to it as high as a horse's head. And the Bible says he does it rejoicing. Victory, 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 as he's doing it. The Bible says that when he punishes the wicked, he gets glory. That's how dreadful. Imagine that. And he's the only one that can do it. So we're not talking about holy war now. We're not talking about blowing ourselves up and saying, praise God, people are dying. He's the only one. Why? Because he's the author and giver of life. He's the author and giver of life. And people who have willfully sinned after knowing better, and they know better, and they sin, and they know better, and they keep doing it. The Bible uses the most descriptive language. I mean, more than a menstrual cycle of a woman in Ezekiel. This says when you are sinning, you are trampling on God himself in his blood. Think of the cross. Think of his back laid open, the crown of thorns upon his head, and you are walking on it. And the Bible says that it's his to avenge. And so what is the warning there, my friends? Don't sin willfully. Don't continue in sin. Somebody might say, well, pastor, have you sinned after being saved? Yes, but I hate my sin. I don't love my sin. That's the difference. People have said, well, you know, can homosexuals, you know, go to heaven? Well, you know, and they, and they try to bring it down and say, well, you know, uh, somebody in your church, they may struggle with pornography, and, and God's still working with them. And somebody's struggling with gossip, and God's working with them. And yes, that is true to a sense. Could somebody be in this church and be homosexual and be struggling with their sin, and God be merciful to them as he sanctified them, as he did with all of us? Yes. Yes, he can. But what I don't agree with is when they want to say, I am gay, I am proud, and God loves me this way, and that is wrong. Because that is just like the thief saying, I am thief, I am proud, and God loves me this way. No, he doesn't. He loves you, but he hates your sin, and you will be judged. And you keep doing that, there's no sacrifice. And so the way this plays out is at the end of your life, you say to God, Lord, Lord, and he says to you, who are you? He says, depart from me, for I never knew you. Never. Well, God, I thought we used to hang out on Sundays. God, I, I, I got married and I got a blessing. God, I used to pray to you and I remember one time I got something from you. No, it's not what he's saying to you. He's saying, I never knew you intimately. Yes, 
We know our enemies in Afghanistan and Iraq, but we don't sit down and have coffee with them. Do you see the difference? We don't know them like that. That's our enemy. We're fighting them. And, you know, pray for the war, but I'm giving you an example. He's saying, yeah, I knew your name. I knew what you did. Obviously, I'm judging you. But we never knew each other in relationship. Why? Because you were willfully sinning. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, the scripture I quoted before. What do we do then? Pastor, well, Pastor, I, I, I've sinned, and sometimes sin is tempting for me. Here's what you do. Hold on tight. Here you go. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Here's the solution. And by the way, don't give yourself a pity patty party. Don't say, well, it's easy for Pastor, but it's not, you know, so much harder for me. No, every single one of us get tempted unto sin. Every one of us. So when you get tempted unto sin and you feel that temptation and you know you ought not to do it, that same way you feel it is the same exact way I feel it. The same exact way. One person's, it may be gossip. Another person, it may be slander. Another person, it may be homosexuality. Another person, it may be pornography. Whatever we consider, whatever the Bible considers sin, we all get tempted that same way. It comes in as a thought, the Bible says in James, then you meditate on it. You act on it as sin, it grows up, becomes death, and it brings you judgment. It's the same way, my friends. Don't have a pity patty party and say, I can't, but somebody else can. No, if we can, you can. Amen? 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Watch good. Amen? So those of you who might be saying, I'm kind of struggling with sin, write 1 John. He wrote to you. Did you understand what I just said? I said, those of you who say I'm struggling with sin, well, then read First John because he's writing to people who struggle with sin. People who kind of sin a lot, maybe have trouble with it, he's writing to you. You'll love the book. Read it. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice. <clears throat> King James says propitiation. That means he takes our place. He's our substitution. For our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. So what do you do when you sin? You confess it. You see, the idea that the warning is giving in Hebrews 10 is saying, don't willfully keep on sinning. You know, because sometimes we give the illustration like, oh, I fell into temptation. You didn't fall into temptation. You put on your speedos, your goggles, bounce up and down on the high dive a couple times. Swan dive, bighooters.com. Come on. Swan dive, cursing you out. Come on. We don't fall into, like, oh, I'm trying so hard. Fall. No, 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 no. We run, jump, dive, camera, picture, shot. Hey. That's how we sin. Be honest with how you sin. You plan it all out. I'll do this. I'll do. This. You think a man commits adultery? It's like let's just commit adultery. I don't know where that thought came from, but I'm going to try it today. No, starts off with just a little lust, then a little fantasy, then a little, little taste of pornography, then a friend at work. See, months are going by. See, they're stretching out. They're getting on the speedos, putting on the glasses kind of bouncing on the board a little bit, putting their foot in the water. And when they finally go to Hotel 8, man, that's a planned act right there, my friend. And I know sometimes you feel like, well, sin just comes right up on me. No, if you, if you get in Christ here a little bit, you're going to find out sin is just not coming right up on you. Sin is a process in your life. And the further you go in Christ, the further you should be going from temptation. So if you ask me today, Joe, do you still get tempted with lust? Absolutely. But I'm not right here on the edge anymore. I'm further. I'm 14 years away from that edge, but it's still there. I still get tempted. It's real temptation. So there is a difference between the baby Christian and the more mature Christian is because we've learned to get away from that edge more. The moment I see something on TV that twerks that or, or something happens, I get away from that. A meditation, I get it out. Because why? I hate sin. The idea isn't God loves sinners so I can just keep on sinning however I want. No, Paul says, God forbid, we're to hate sin and love righteousness. Amen. And our last point today, would you stand to your feet as we get it out? The last one is missing grace. Rachel, would you come, please? Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. <clears throat> Make every effort to live in peace with all men and be holy. Praise God. Come on, somebody. Can we hear an amen for being holy? Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. 
That was so weak, man. Come on. Can I get half a church to believe this this morning? One more time. 1214. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see God. There's the warning. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. And that bitter, that no bitter root grows to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, he wanted to inherit the blessing. He was rejected. He could not bring about a change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. The Bible ends by saying, don't miss the grace of God. After studying these five warnings, and if you want the paper I wrote on it, it's about 12 pages. It's really cool. I'll send it to you. Just email me. As I studied this out, I came up with the idea that they all build on each other. Pay attention so that sin doesn't take over, cause unbelief, where I fall away and live in willful sin and miss the grace of God. I'm going to say that again. God is warning us to pay attention. So that sin doesn't take us away from believing and we fall away and we live in it, willful sin, and miss His grace. Do you see how all five warnings come together? Because right at the end, I haven't paid attention. I've drifted away. I begin to get a hard heart. Now I've fallen away and all I'm doing is living in continual sin. What have I done? Here's the grace of God. I just totally missed it. I missed the whole thing. Congregation, don't miss the grace of God. The grace of God says sinners like us get forgiven. And then saints like us live holy. That's the grace of God. But he says one thing at the end. I don't have time to talk about sexual morality. I think you guys got enough of that today. But he says this one word, godlessness that comes from bitterness, that grows a root in you and not only destroys your life, but people around you. And then he compares it to Esau. Now I want you to hear the story of Esau. He's the brother of Jacob. He has the right to all of Israel's, I mean all of um, Isaac's inheritance. He's the oldest son, and Jacob is a little schemer. He's cooking some good soup one day, okay? Anybody have a favorite soup? Chili or something? Love chili. Boom, there it is. Now Esau's been out hunting all day, but he has no food. Jacob says, I'll give you my chili if you give me your inheritance. Like literally, it's like a dollar bowl of chili to a million dollar inheritance. And Esau's like, uh, okay. Trades. He says, I'll give you our dad's entire inheritance so that I can eat right now. You might say, well, what does it have to do with bitterness and godlessness? Listen, listen. When Esau saw that there was something that he didn't have, he didn't know how to be patient to get it. And bitterness towards his brother grew up out of jealousy. Think about that. Esau has a brand, he just killed something, whatever. He has like, you know, a calf. No, he probably didn't hunt a calf, like hunting it down, tackle it, stab it. No, he, he probably had like a deer, okay? Bam. But he sees Jacob eating his little bowl of chili. And something gets inside of his heart and he says, I want that bowl of chili. I can't wait to cook my food on the grill. I want that right now. And then he says, I get, I mean, he gets bitter. I'm angry that you have it and I don't. And then he commits a godless act, a stupid godless act. He says, I want what you have so bad, I'll give up anything, my inheritance for it. Now, how does this relate to us? God says, I'm going to do something in your life. He is. He's going to do something. And you become bitter, not with man. You become bitter with God because it doesn't happen. 
Maybe God said He'd restore a marriage. Maybe God said He would bless you financially. I mean, how many people are still believing for that right now? Come on. Maybe God said He'll save your lost son or daughter. And instead of just chilling and saying, man, I got all this. God is moving. I'm just going to be cool with this and wait for that. You get bitter. And you say, God, I'm angry because you're not doing what I want now. And then what is all godlessness come down to? I'll give up everything just to have that. And so a single girl will say, I'll take that man to marry me and give up her whole call of God on her life just to be married to some bozo that's never going to treat her right. Why? Because she couldn't wait. She committed a godless act out of bitterness in her heart. She just said, man, I don't want to do this anymore. I'll just take that. Purity. Somebody says, I don't want purity. I want sex. Boom. I don't want holiness. I want money. I'll take that job. I don't want accountability in Jesus. I want my life. I'll do it now. Selfish ambition. So how do you guard yourself from this bitterness of not getting what you want in life? Because we all don't get what we want, do we? How do we guard ourselves? We say, God, it's your way. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We won't trade what we have for the things of this world. Don't trade God, His love, His grace, His forgiveness for sin. That's the whole point of the warnings, my friends. Don't do it. And I'll close with this, my personal story. There was a time when I was in Bible college. And I had friends, and they thought it was okay to go out to the beach. And some of you have heard it a hundred times. i got to tell it again because it's my testimony. And they love to go out to the beach. And man, there's nothing wrong with the beach. You know, live down in New Orleans, take a quick ride over an hour and a half. You're right there in Florida having a good time. They were going to spend the weekend there. They had met some Christians. They said they had a house to stay at. They were going to come back for Monday school. Everything was good. And God just put a check in my heart. And he said, that's not for you. I want you to stay here. And I want you to go out preaching. Do your work. That's what you're going to do. And I want to tell you something. I got so mad at God. I remember literally going back to my room crying. Why are you doing this to me, God? See, because I was close enough with God to know that he was telling me that. I, I knew it was him. Not a doubt in my mind. And I was so angry at him. Why? And bitterness began to grow up in my heart towards God. I kind of went out that day. I brought my Bible, you know. And go witnessing. But then I went out by obedience. God blessed me. I saw the Spirit. Forgot all about it. But that's the way I felt at that time. A couple weeks later, it was exposed that two of the three guys that went out had fallen sexually when they were on that trip. That they had gone out and made wrong decisions and they got kicked out of Bible college. As they got kicked out, I kept going. They came back. I was given the role of pastor. Those guys had to call me pastor. They would come to school. Pastor Joe, how are you doing? I'm doing good, man. How are you? And God said, see? See what I was doing? He said, you almost missed it. You almost missed it. You didn't get it. But you almost missed it. I had a plan here. And I want to tell you guys, I haven't been perfect throughout life. But I know that some of you are close to missing it. And I'm telling you, you don't have to miss it. You don't have to miss it. Follow God. Even if it seems like it's the long way to getting married. Even if giving your tithe seems like it's pointless. Man, I don't have money to tithe. Tithe. Even if coming to church seems hard. Nobody else in your family wants to come. Even if going to discipleship. I'm just saying, witnessing all of these things. They don't seem worth it to you. I'm telling you it is. You're holding on. You don't see what's happening. The world around you is falling apart. But you're okay. And in a short time, I don't know, a month, a year, I'm not God. But I'm telling you, you will say, God, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for teaching me to hold on. Thank you, God, for not giving up on me. Thank you, God, for warning me. Because He loves us. He loves us. Let's pray. Father, You love us. The question is, do we love You? You said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands today, Lord. I pray that those who have struggled with this, God, will take these warnings to heart today. 
and get right with you. If you're in this place right now as I'm praying, I invite you to this altar to get right with God one last time before you leave here so that you heed these warnings. Rest of the saints, pray and check your hearts. We're going to make an altar call right now. Here it is. Those that need it, come. The rest of you, guard your hearts.